The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Grace. I've heard from individuals with PK deficiency about all different types of conversations that they've had with their providers related to iron. And despite that iron overload is a known risk, both in transfused and non-transfused individuals with PK deficiency, I've known of individuals who are put on oral iron supplements or even prescribed IV iron in an attempt to improve their anemia. And we know that taking additional iron needs to be avoided in PK deficiency unless there's clear evidence of iron deficiency, which would be very unusual. I've also heard from a number of individuals who've stopped going to see their hematologists because they felt like no specific recommendations were made at their visits. It's important that patients with PK deficiency advocate for iron monitoring at least on an annual basis and continue to educate the medical community about disease complications that occur in PK deficiency, especially iron overload regardless of their gender, their age, or even their transfusion status. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Sujit Sheth, who is a pediatric hematologist and the chief of the Division of Pediatric Hematology Oncology at New York Presbyterian Children's Hospital and Cornell Medical Center. He is also vice chair of clinical research in the Department of Pediatrics at Cornell. Dr. Sheth is an expert in iron metabolism, and his research is focused on the management of patients with thalassemia and other transfused hematologic conditions. Today's podcast is focused on understanding iron overload and its management. Dr. Sheth, welcome to today's podcast. Dr. Sheth, tell us how you became interested in clinical research and care of patients with rare anemias. So first, thank you, Dr. Grace, for having me on this podcast. It really is a pleasure to be here. My interest in hematology actually came from when I was in training back in India, where we had a lot of patients with red cell disorders, particularly thalassemia and sickle cell anemia. And so I got interested in red cells and came here to do a fellowship way back 30 years ago. And then I had two amazing mentors and doctors, Sergio Piamelli and Gary Brittenham, and they were researchers in all things red cell and iron related. So my interest in iron metabolism came from them as well. And so all of the research that I've done related to iron metabolism was inspired by them as well. So it's a long ways off, but that's where this interest came to be from. And how did you get involved in particular in research in pyruvate kinase deficiency? So over the years, again, because of my mentors having that the reputation that they had, we had a lot of patients being referred to us with all kinds of red cell disorders, including pyruvate kinase deficiency. I've had over the years about 10 patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency that I've followed regularly, and this included children as well as adults. And again, with my interest in being in red cell disorders, this fits in perfectly with that interest because pyrokinase deficiency is a pretty generally common in the sense of for a non-spherocytic hemolytic anemia, it is pretty much the most common pathy. It's something that has grown over time, my interest in, and my practice as well. And you have a large patient population that you take care of that's at risk for iron overload. Yes. When you see those patients and their families, how do you explain what iron overload is? I like to tell them that the human body was designed with a little bit of a flaw, not intentionally. I think iron 
way back when we were evolving was a precious metal and you could really mostly only get it from having a meat-based diet. Vegetarians didn't really get enough iron. So you weren't designed to be able to use and dispose of iron the same way as you do for other things. So for instance, at lunch, if you had two bags of potato chips, what's going to happen to your sodium level? Your sodium level is going to transiently go up, but then your kidneys are going to just get rid of the extra sodium and then you're going to be fine. Unfortunately, your body can't do that with iron. So when you get a whole bunch of iron going into your system, it doesn't leave without it being helped out. So individuals who have a problem with iron metabolism, whether it's based on a genetic problem or based on getting too many transfusions, that iron will accumulate and then cause problems. And so I explain it to patients as you have a propensity to absorb too much iron or you're getting a lot of iron through transfusions and your body doesn't have a way of getting rid of the excess. And that's why it accumulates. And when it accumulates, it can cause problems. And how do you know if a patient has developed iron overload? So that's a very interesting question because there are no symptoms directly related to the iron overload itself. Over time, you have complications from the iron overload and that causes organ dysfunction, particularly in the heart or the endocrine organs, or sometimes in severe cases, the skin starts to get darker and pigmented as well. And that's when you know that somebody has iron overload. But otherwise, as it's building up, you don't really know that you have iron overload. So it's really important in that situation to get a very detailed history, to know what the underlying condition may be, and then to get a detailed history of transfusions, or if you have chronic jaundice and you might have a chronic hemolytic process, then that may predispose you to absorbing too much iron from the gut as well. So it's getting a good history and then asking for symptomatology related to these organ abnormalities that I mentioned before. So, you know, whether you have diabetes or you have heart disease, those might be reflective of an underlying iron overload problem. I think that's really important for individuals to understand that there aren't symptoms associated with iron overload. And there actually can be significant iron loading in different organs in someone who feels entirely well and thinks of themselves as being healthy. Yes, absolutely. One important question that comes up from a patient perspective is why does iron overload develop in individuals who aren't transfused who have pyruvate kinase deficiency in particular? So pyruvate kinase deficiency leads to what we call ineffective erythropoiesis, which just means that your bone marrow is not able to make red blood cells normally. Because of the deficiency of pyruvate kinase, the red cells are not able to metabolize glucose normally and therefore are not are susceptible to oxidative stresses. So stresses from too much iron, too much of an oxidative stress in the bone marrow. And so because you have this ineffective erythropoiesis, there are some complex signals that are sent from your bone marrow to your liver, and your liver makes a lower amount than normal of a hormone called hepcidin. Hepcidin is the way that your body regulates how much iron comes into the system from being absorbed from your food, from your intestinal tract. And when your levels of hepcidin are low because of this ineffective erythropoiesis, you tend to absorb a lot more iron than your body needs. And so you can become iron overloaded even when you're not getting regularly transfused because of this problem in your bone marrow and the ineffective erythropoiesis leading to increased absorption of iron from your diet. 
So in, in thinking about people who have pervic kinase deficiency and when they should be monitored for an iron overload, when do you start to recommend doing tests to look to see if someone's had iron overload? And do you think about transfused individuals differently than non-transfused? Do you think about men and women differently? Do you think about it differently depending on the age of the patients that you're seeing? All very important questions. I think the easier question is when we think about transfusion-dependent patients, getting patients getting regular transfusion, I would say once you've gotten about 10 or 12 transfusions, you should be monitored. So essentially, you should have an MRI of your liver and we can assess how much iron is accumulated in your liver. And that gives you a good sense as to what the total body iron load actually is. And it will guide whether or not you need to start iron chelation therapy at that point. It's a little bit more complicated in non-transfusion-dependent patients. And so I would say that a non-transfusion-dependent patient should have at least one MRI sometime towards the end of the first decade of life, at least by seven or eight, they should have at least one MRI of the liver. And we get a sense of how much iron is accumulated there despite not being transfused regularly. And based on what you see there, and then based on the degree of anemia, the degree of ineffective erythrosis, you might be able to have some sort of prediction as to how quickly iron will load in the future. Then if you do it at, say, seven or eight, and it's completely normal, then I think it's okay to wait until another three or five years to see if, again, you've loaded in that period to become loaded enough to need chelation therapy. If, on the other hand, the one at seven or eight already shows that you're iron overloaded, then either you start chelation if you're iron overloaded enough, or you wait and do another scan in a year or two years to see if you've gotten to that level, which requires you to be chelated at the same time. It's very important to also keep in mind that men and women do load iron a little bit differently, particularly post-pubertal, when women start to menstruate and lose some amount of blood each month, and therefore some amount of iron is lost every month as well. Men also tend to have a higher muscle mass than women do. And as a result of that, their protein intake and therefore probably the amount of meat and animal products that they're eating may be higher, and therefore they may be getting exposed to more iron in the diet as well. And so that might also play a role in terms of the degree of iron overload that they may have. So men and women are different, and women tend to load iron more slowly because they're losing some of it already thanks to the menstrual cycle and blood loss every month. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near term, Agios is focusing on advancing a clinical pipeline of medicines for hereditary hemolytic anemias. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. You just mentioned monitoring through MRI studies. How does that fit in with monitoring with ferritin levels? Most individuals are used to hearing about their ferritin levels being checked on an annual basis or if they're being transfused more regularly. But how do you 
think about the MRI and the ferritin levels as monitoring. That's another really important issue as well. And what we've learned since we started to do regular MRIs in the early 2000s was that it does not correlate very well with the ferritin levels. So when you do a correlation, if you just did a graph and you plotted ferritin levels on one hand and MRIs on the other, there is a statistically significant relationship. But in individual patients, it does not correlate well. So even though people say the ferritin level does correlate with the MRI, it doesn't in an individual. And if my ferritin level was 500, my liver iron could be 5. And somebody else's ferritin level is also 500, but their liver iron could be 8 or 10. So it's really difficult to predict what somebody's liver iron is and therefore what the total body iron is by doing just a ferritin level. So that's why I think it's really important that every patient at least have one MRI, as I mentioned, and then have some sort of schedule as to how regularly those MRIs are going to be monitored. It's reasonable practice to monitor ferritin levels for assessing trends in individuals who are getting regularly transfused. And it is helpful because if you see the ferritin level going up dramatically from transfusion to transfusion, it might tell you that the chelation is not adequate. And it might tell you it's time to do another MRI to see what's going on in the liver as well. But usually I don't make decisions to start chelation or to change chelation based just on the ferritin level. So I think it is really important to measure that. And the other important thing about the MRI and ferritin is that the ferritin level does not tell you anything about your cardiac iron. And there's really no correlation between cardiac iron and your ferritin level. And the other thing is that the liver iron and the cardiac iron don't necessarily go hand in hand. They're not correlated very well. You also have to get the cardiac MRI when you're getting the liver MRI. The heart tends to load iron slower and unload iron slower than the liver does. And therefore, you may not necessarily need to get the cardiac iron assessment every year. You might be able to do it every two years or every three years if your levels have been normal. But it is important to get that because the two things don't correlate very well. So I think the ferritin level is useful, but with limited use. And in individuals, you do need to get at least one MRI and then see how that ferritin level is varying with the MRI values that you're getting for liver iron concentrations as well. You mentioned this already about looking at the liver and the heart when imaging for iron overload. What are some of the complications of iron overload and how is iron harmful to the body? So that's really important as well. Body loads iron, but not all tissues in the body are equally susceptible to the effects of iron overload. So iron tends to load into the liver first, and the liver is a normal storage organ for iron, so that's where it goes first, and it's stored in there. And then once the capacity of the liver for holding iron safely is exceeded, then it spills out, gets into the bloodstream, and then goes to the heart and the endocrine organs. And those are the two organ systems that are the most susceptible to the effect of too much iron. When iron deposits in the heart, it can cause one of two things. It can cause the heart muscle to become stiff, and therefore you can have a problem with your heart contraction, and that can lead to heart failure over time. Or it can deposit in the sensitive electrical fibers in your heart and cause irregularities in your heartbeat as well. And so patients may have symptoms of irregular heartbeats, or patients may have symptoms from heart failure. 
when it deposits in the endocrine organs, and it can deposit in the pituitary gland, it can deposit in the thyroid gland, it can deposit in the endocrine part of your pancreas, it can deposit in your ovaries and testes, and it can cause dysfunction of any or more than one of those organs as well. So for instance, in children, if it deposits into the pituitary gland, they don't make enough growth hormone. And so they may not grow normally. They may also develop thyroid dysfunction. They may develop diabetes when it deposits in the islet cells of the pancreas. And they may also have problems with fertility, problems with going through puberty if it deposits in the ovaries and testes, and you're not able to make adequate amounts of estrogen in females and testosterone in males. Those organs can be affected. Now, I mentioned looking at iron in the heart and in the liver by MRI. There are some techniques where you can look at iron in the pituitary and the pancreas as well. These are not standardized, and so it's not standard of care to measure those. And it's probably okay to measure just the liver and heart and get a good sense of where you are from the standpoint of iron overload in the body as a whole. But for the other organs, it's important to also measure the hormone levels So thyroid hormone levels and growth hormone levels and monitor for insulin problems with the glucose tolerance test, measure testosterone and estrogen levels. So it deposits in all these organs, some organs being more sensitive than others. And so we monitor by MRI, we monitor by functional studies as well. But it is really important to keep track of what's going on in all of these organs as well. If in your monitoring, you find that a patient has iron overload When do you start to think about chelation in patients and how do you pick among the different chelator options? That's also a really good question. So we typically, in somebody who's getting regularly transfused, will say it's probably time to start chelation after about 12 to 15 transfusions because it's just by doing the math and correlating with the MRI that we get to an MRI level of five to six to eight with that many transfusions. Now, the normal level and the units I'm talking about for liver iron measurements is milligrams per gram dry weight. Lots of different units are used, but it's important for consistency that when we talk about it, we'll just use milligrams per gram dry weight. And the ideal range we want to keep somebody at to prevent complications, to prevent it going to the heart and to prevent it going to the endocrine organs, is you want to keep it somewhere around three to five milligrams per gram dry weight in the liver. And if you can maintain that, then the chances of your having heart disease or endocrine disease is very low. So it's really key to monitor and to keep it in that particular range. If, on the other hand, it's going to go above that, then you have to chelate more aggressively. So in transfusion-dependent patients, we typically will start chelation after about 12 to 15 transfusions. In non-transfusion-dependent patients, we might think about starting chelation when the liver iron level creeps five, six, seven. Again, same threshold that we use for transfusion-dependent individuals because we want to keep it under that three to five level. So long as we keep it there, complications in other organs are minimized. Now, there are three chelators that are available that are FDA approved. So the first is diferoxamine, which was the only chelator we had until 2005 when the first oral chelator was approved in the U.S., The problem with that is that it has to be given by subcutaneous infusion over 8 to 10 hours each night. Needless to say, there's a lot of pain associated with it, needle sticks, lumps and bumps, and sometimes sterile infections or sterile abscesses or infections can develop at the site of injection. And because of that, compliance is not very good. So we don't really use deferoxamine as first-line therapy 
very much these days. It's usually used as a combination with one of the oral chelators. The oral chelators, there are two of them now that have been approved. Deferocyrox, which was approved first in 2005, and that one can be taken once a day because it has a long half-life. It stays around in your body for a longer period of time, and so you can take it just once a day, and that's adequate. And then deferoprone, which has a shorter half-life and has to be given either two or three times in a day. And obviously, if you're supposed to take something more than once in a day, it becomes complicated, and sometimes you forget a middle dose, you forget it. And so we've gravitated towards the once-a-day chelator as the go-to starting chelator because it's once a day and therefore easier to take. If for some reason you don't tolerate it very well, or if you have very high levels of iron and you need to have more than one chelator on board, then we do combinations. And so we can do a combination of deferocyrox with deferoprone, the other oral chelator, or deferocyrox with deferoxamine, which is the injectable chelator. So Depending on what is going on with the iron levels, as well as with the monitoring for toxicity with these chelators, we might need to dose reduce one and add a second one. But typically, the first line is deferocyrox, the once-a-day oral chelator. And then if they don't tolerate that, then we go to the other oral chelator. And if they don't tolerate that either, then we have to go to deferoxamine. But the Deferoxamine and deferocyrox, sorry, deferocyrox is usually the first line, and then deferoxamine and deferoprone are usually used as combination agents with deferocyrox. And you had mentioned at the beginning patients who have genetic hemochromatosis, and in those individuals, when they develop iron overload, we often prescribe therapeutic phlebotomy, removing blood to help remove iron. Is that a possibility in people who have anemia or who have pyruvate kinase deficiency? It is a possibility and people have done it, but I strongly recommend against it. And the reason for that is that your bone marrow, when you have pyruvate kinase deficiency, your bone marrow is already stressed. It's already struggling and there is a certain level of ineffective erythropoiesis. What we do with transfusions is to try and suppress that ineffective erythropoiesis and increase the hemoglobin level. And that can lead to iron overload in time, but we think that the benefit of the transfusions to have a higher hemoglobin and to suppress the bone marrow are worth it. If you start phlebotomizing somebody, that means that you're dropping their hemoglobin even lower. So they're already anemic and you're making them even more anemic. And that is going to put even more stress on the bone marrow. So it's going to become even more ineffective and that's going to cause even more iron absorption. So yes, you might be able to get rid of some of the excess iron, but it comes at a very high price. And I would definitely not recommend doing that. I think that if you are not transfusion dependent and you're iron overloaded, you should be chelated rather than phlebotomized. And the one other thing that I will say is I would absolutely steer clear of getting erythropoietin and then getting phlebotomized as well. Because again, what the erythropoietin will do, it will drive the ineffective erythropoiesis and you'll have even more ineffective erythropoiesis, more bone disease, more iron absorption definitely not the way you want to go. So I would steer clear of phlebotomy in anybody who's anemic. And most private kinase deficiency patients are anemic. And so I would say that this is not a very good way of getting rid of iron. Thank you for making those points. I think that's incredibly important. And it, this is something that comes up for patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, particularly for individuals who aren't transfused and are found to have iron overload. 
And because it's rare, I think sometimes this is offered as a possible therapeutic approach to getting rid of the iron. And so I think your opinion is very valuable to those individuals. To clarify, individuals with hereditary hemochromatosis do not have a problem in their bone marrow. Their bone marrows are functioning just fine. They're not stressed. And so if you phlebotomize them, then their bone marrow will just react a little bit and make up whatever blood they've lost. But in somebody with pyrokinase deficiency, it's very different. The bone marrow is nowhere close to normal. And that's why it's not a good idea to stress it even more by removing blood. And in thinking about, again, individuals with genetic hemochromatosis, sometimes specific diets are suggested for patients or non-chelation medications are discussed. Are any of those relevant to individuals who have iron overload from transfusions or who have iron overload related to hemolytic anemia? We talked about in the beginning that individuals with pyruvate kinase deficiency have ineffective erythropoiesis, and that drives the increased iron absorption, right? So if you're not getting transfused, then you still have a significant amount of ineffective erythropoiesis, and all of the iron overload that you develop is because of increased absorption. In that situation, you might want to limit, to some extent, the amount of iron that you're taking in by mouth. And so for those individuals, I would recommend being on a relatively low iron diet. And by no means should you cut out all iron-containing foods or be drastic in that sense. Because if you get to that point of becoming iron overloaded, which will happen very slowly anyway, or much slower than somebody who's regularly transfused, we can kill you in that situation. So you don't have to completely change your lifestyle and cut out iron completely. So I would say don't eat 16-ounce steaks every day because that's probably not so good for you for a number of reasons, not just the iron part of it, but the cholesterol and everything else as well. So temper that and limit the amount of red meat that you're eating, but eat everything else in a healthy, balanced manner. And the only other really important thing to keep in mind is that if you're taking vitamin supplements, make sure that they do not contain any iron at all, not even low-dose iron, because that will be absorbed very efficiently by your body, even though it doesn't need that extra iron. But other than that, there aren't any other medications that are particularly useful in terms of getting rid of extra iron. If you're on chelation and you don't have very high levels of iron overload, taking some vitamin C may be helpful to mobilize some of that iron. But if you're highly iron overloaded, avoid the vitamin C because it'll mobilize the iron and the iron will go to the heart. And we don't want that to happen. Okay. Other than that, there's no other medication. So for non-transfusion dependent patients, not much. For transfusion-dependent patients, they are likely to be on chelation anyway. So in that situation, and the proportion of the iron overload that they have that is contributed to by the increased iron absorption is very low compared to the transfusion burden. You can absorb maybe an additional three or four milligrams of iron each day from increased absorption. But if you're regularly transfused, then you're getting about 20 to 30 milligrams of extra iron each day. So In those situations, I don't think limiting, again, limiting the diet is not of great relevance because you can reduce the amount of iron, you'll save maybe two or three milligrams of iron, but you're getting 20 or 30 from transfusions and it's it's not that big of a difference. So again, I'm not recommending that you can eat as much red meat and as unhealthy a diet as you want. Having a good balanced, healthy diet is important, but again, not being too restrictive in terms of eating things that actually do contain iron. 
You just touched on this point, particularly for individuals who are not being transfused, but can patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency avoid developing iron overload? If you have very mild pyruvate kinase deficiency, your bone marrow doesn't have a whole lot of ineffective erythropoiesis. And so the iron absorption may be increased only a small amount. You will likely develop iron overload, but it will take many years or even decades to get to that point. The more anemic you are, the more severe your pyruvate kinase deficiency is, the more ineffective your erythropoiesis is, the more ineffective your bone marrow is, and the more ineffective it is, the greater the amount of iron that you're going to absorb from your diet is going to be. So the short answer is no, you can't really avoid it, but the degree to which it becomes relevant is different depending on the severity of your underlying pyruvate kinase deficiency. Some clinicians may not be aware of the risk of iron overload in non-transfused individuals with PK deficiency. How can patients best advocate for themselves at their medical visits? I don't think most medical practitioners like to be challenged by patients. So my advice would be not to challenge your doctor, but to suggest it. I was reading somewhere that even though I'm not getting regularly transfused, I'm at risk for iron overload. What do you think? And shouldn't I be getting some kind of monitoring to see if I am becoming iron overloaded or not? I think putting it that way, and I think this is where these sorts of sessions, and if you've watched podcasts like this one or others, where you can get some of this information, you can even direct your physician to these podcasts and say, you know, listen to this podcast. This is where I got my information from. Listen to it and maybe it'll be helpful as well. So putting it in that manner, I think would be received better and would be received well to say, yeah, I hear you. I think you know what you're talking about and I'll look into it. And then maybe we will get that MRI or we'll do some monitoring for your iron overload as well. But definitely have to advocate. And taking no for an answer is not acceptable. If somebody says, no, you're not, then you have to challenge them further and give them some reading material for something like that. But it is important that you not be sidelined and not be ignored because it is an important issue and it does need to be looked at. The the monitoring should be done for sure. I think that's excellent advice. I do think it's important to come to the visits prepared and to have even a medical paper or something from one of the patient group websites or, as you said, podcasts like this so that clinicians can be informed as well. I wouldn't go in with a scientific paper because that's, again, a little bit more challenging. The doctor should have read the paper. Instead, you're presenting it to them as a scientific paper. I think websites and podcasts and things like that, I think are much less threatening. And I think much more acceptable to folks that may not have that much in-depth knowledge of pyrokinase deficiency. Yeah. I think it would be my hope too that clinicians want to be informed, want to do their best too. And the managing of patients are usually open to the patient voice and knowledge of their own disease too. I agree. It's so important to advocate for yourself. I want to thank you, Dr. Seth, so much for being part of today's podcast, for sharing your expertise. I think the audience is really going to benefit in terms of how you think about monitoring patients, how to manage iron overload, both in transfused settings and in those who have hemolytic anemia and are not transfused. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. And I wish all the patients and whoever's listening all the very best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. 
And if you'd like to learn more about PK deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is no K-N-O-W-P-K-deficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.